Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9. I want you to notice with me the expression there that is found uh, in verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness. Thou hast loved righteousness. As we continue this look at Hebrews, and we've spent an extended amount of time already in the very first chapter dealing with this dignity of Christ or His worthiness. We have been looking at the characteristics of who God is and who Christ is specifically. We've talked about the majesty of His mercy. We've dealt with the magnitude of His name. We've talked about His sonship. We've talked about His humiliation and His exaltation. And this morning we deal with His righteousness. It is this beautiful picture of what really describes Christ in probably the most illustrative way. His righteousness. We understand that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. I think every believer here today is not questioning today whether or not Christ is worthy of my praise, worthy of my worship. I think we all that are in Christ today would say He certainly is worthy. But we've established the fact over our study that He is not worthy because we declare Him worthy. He's declared to be worthy because the Father, God the Father, has declared Him to be so. Uh, It's easy in our world today to declare what we think is valuable. Uh, It's been said often that something is only as valuable as somebody declares it to be. Uh, What's valuable to one may not be valuable to another. What I say is important to me may not be important to you. But I would say today, without any apologies, that Christ is in fact worthy of all the praise and the honor that God the Father declares Him to receive. So as we look at these passages this morning, I'm really going to give you uh, three headings today. And if if you want to write these down, you certainly can do so. Uh, If not, that's all right. But three main headings. And the first one is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ as King and His Kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ as King and His Kingdom. The second heading, why the kingdom was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the citizens of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that His righteousness also deals with His kingship and also deals with His kingdom. Notice again that the verse number 8 reminds us that this is God speaking of His Son. We studied last week how that uh, God the Father uh, had used the illustrations between uh, the angels and how He spoke to Christ and what He declared Christ to be. Notice again, He says, But unto the Son, He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The scepter is a picture of the authority. It's a picture of he who is in the proper place. This scepter, you'll notice, it says, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of the kingdom. In order to be the king of this kingdom, the son has to have this scepter of righteousness. 
Now, this is not just a random phrase that is being quoted here. As many of the other scriptures we've looked at today, this is a quote that is found directly in the 45th Psalm. If you'll turn there with me, Psalm 45, I want you to see that the author of Hebrews was writing and quoting Psalm 45 with regard to this kingdom and even this righteousness. Psalm 45, let's begin there. In verse number one, it says, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. Psalm 45 paints a wonderful, beautiful picture of God seated upon this eternal throne. This throne, of course, is being occupied by the sun, and the sun is holding this scepter of righteousness. This scepter of righteousness is the characteristic of the mediator's government of this world and of his people. We know Christ is the mediator. We've studied that. But Jesus himself, as the mediator, always rules in perfect justice. Uh, he is, there is no unjustness in him. Think about what he has done just for his own people. Think about what he has done for you. He has redeemed you. He has taken you from the, the, the miry clay, from the, from the pit of sin. And he has magnified himself and made honorable the law in which he has perfectly kept for us. That's one of those mysteries that we need to really consider and think. It is not that Christ did away with the law, but he's a perfect fulfiller of that law. And the beauty of that is, is because we could not keep it, he kept the law perfectly. That scepter of righteousness is being held by he which has done and will do no sin. It is his gospel which proclaims God to be just while he is also the justifier of the ungodly. It is Christ and his gospel that reveals what righteousness really is. Think about what's going to happen in the days to come. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he takes his bride again, he is going to present his people and his kingdom up to the Father. I've often thought about what this day is going to be like. And I've come to the conclusion that my mind cannot fully wrap around what it's going to be when his church is present, presented before the Father. 
I think about the greatest times of worship that we've had in this little church. I think about the times when the presence of God seemed to be uh, more uh, just in a way that was unmistakable what was happening here. And I think about what the beauty of that is, what the beauty of it is even when we sang these hymns this morning and we're all singing as believers with faith, looking forward to that day. And as beautiful as this is today, there will be nothing quite like the day. When the Lord Jesus Christ in perfect righteousness presents us before the Father. I can't imagine. I can't even begin to understand what that might be. But I also know I'm not sure I fully comprehend all that was required to declare me righteous. Righteousness is one of those things that the Bible says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We know that it's not our righteousness, it's not our good works, it's not our good deeds, it's not our good thoughts, our good actions. It is based upon a righteousness that is only found in He who is righteousness. We'll be delivered up to the Father and we will forever remain with Him. That righteousness, His people, His sheep, were purchased with His own blood. Right now, we talk about a kingdom, and sadly, I think we talk about a kingdom that is what's going to be, and we forget that this is already His kingdom. Jesus Christ is already King. This isn't something that the, the Satan is playing keep away from Christ and saying, you can't have this yet. It's already His. Now, we're not seeing the perfect fulfillment of when sin is going to be put away. We're not seeing all that glory is going to be, but... To believe today that Christ is not upon the throne, that He does not have that scepter in His hand, would be to believe a lie. It says that the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of the kingdom. In order to have a right to that kingdom, you have to have the scepter of righteousness. And only Christ has that. His kingdom here spoken upon that kingdom that's upon the throne of which the king is seated upon. He reigns in righteousness. Isaiah 32.1 tells us, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father because he had already accomplished the work in which he was sent to do. He is not seated there making salvation possible. He has declared that through what was accomplished on the cross, He has redeemed His own. He knows who His people are. He knows where they are. He knows what they're going through. He knows everything about them because they're His. I like being known. Not so much by you. No disrespect intended. But I love being known by he who holds the scepter of righteousness. But I'm also fearfully convicted when he, I know he knows me. And he knows that I'm not perfectly righteous. I'm not perfectly holy. And I don't perfectly fulfill the law. I know how far short of the glory of God that I come. It does bring a sense of fear into my heart. Not that I'm going to lose his righteousness, but that his righteousness should mean so much to me that I don't want to do anything to displease him. And it's even as we talked about during our confession study this morning, it is the resistance 
to the sin which so easily besets us. You see, I know I can't be perfectly righteous just because of what I am. I'm a depraved sinner who can claim nothing but the merits of Jesus Christ, knowing that each and every day, sadly, I'm not going to be what God requires to be accepted. However, Jesus Christ sits down at the right hand of the Father. He makes an end of sin. He's made a reconciliation for the iniquities of his people. And with that, he has brought in not just a temporal righteousness, he has brought in an everlasting righteousness. Over in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24, I'll just read this to you. If you can get there quickly, you can follow along. But I'm going to read this beautiful picture of this. Daniel 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That psalm, the 45th psalm, refers to not only Christ, which is extremely evident, but the whole tenor of the psalm gives us this picture of the promise of an everlasting righteousness. I can't imagine what it would be like today to live in a religion where you never knew if, righteous, if the righteousness that was good for today was enough. There are people who sadly, each and every day, they get up every day and they wonder, do I have enough to stand before God? Do I have enough to be accepted into the beloved? Do I have an everlasting righteousness? Friends, we have an everlasting, without end, righteousness found in Jesus Christ. And because of that righteousness, we have assurance today that I will never lose that because we have a king and a kingdom that is forever. Kings come and kings go. Kingdoms rise up and kingdoms fall. It has been the history of mankind. There are kings and kingdoms on this planet today that will not be kings and kingdoms maybe in a number of years. We know that God establishes kings. He establishes kingdom. There is no one in charge, no one in authority, even over the largest nation, the smallest nation, that God in his providential sovereignty did not place there. We can fret and be worried about the kings and the kingdoms that he's placed us under, or we can say, but there is an ultimate king who is ruling and reigning in everlasting perfect righteousness. I don't look to earthly kings to mete out perfect righteousness. I don't look to any earthly king to say, now that's the answer for our problems. That individual can change the whole course of our nation. I'm not worried about temporal kingdoms. Oh sure, I want to live in a nation that awakens, that God awakens to the holiness and the righteousness of God. But I will tell you, there will never be an awakening in this nation until the fear of God is put at the very forefront of every single heart. The problem is not politics. The problem is there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. And until God and the fearfulness of who he is is the thing that is resonating and moving in our hearts, there will not be an awakening. 
But we're not looking for earthly kingdoms. We're not looking to establish an earthly kingdom that lasts forever here. We're looking for that everlasting kingdom that's founded and kept on the everlasting righteousness of Jesus Christ. The 45th Psalm, of course, David was promised by God. And he said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know David as a type of Christ that gives us a picture of the establishment of the throne of this kingdom. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33 says this, As Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus to Mary, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. This, in fact, is the only everlasting kingdom. The only kingdom that will last throughout all of eternity is the kingdom in which Christ rules. Psalm 45 gives us that picture of Jesus being described as riding forth in majesty and putting down every enemy. I don't know the hour, I don't know the day, but there will come a time, the Bible clearly tells us, when every enemy of God will be put down. I am not calling and looking for the destruction of people. I'm looking and praying that God opens their eyes and that in His sovereign will, people are saved by the multitudes. I would love to wake up this morning and see God had moved in such a way that people were converted, that repentance was happening all around us, and even who we consider unsavable people are coming into the kingdom of God. But I also know there's coming a day when God's perfect providence will be carried out. His decrees will continue to be carried out and every enemy of the cross will not be able to stand. Folks, I realize today sometimes it's easy to get caught up in what's going on around you and forget who you belong to. You belong to the king who's ruling with a scepter of righteousness. Who no matter how dark the day gets, no matter how terrible things around us get, we are eternally His because of what was accomplished at the cross. It's evident that even in Hebrews, the writer here speaks of Jesus in the character of a mediator, the Son of Man. It is in the character of Christ that shows that He is in fact the key of this relationship. His creation can only be connected to the Father through Christ. You'll notice again in our text in Hebrews, he says, unto the Son, he says, thy throne. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So we see, first of all, in that first heading, that the Lord Jesus Christ is that King, and it is his kingdom. The second heading, the first part of verse 9 We see why the kingdom was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, we saw in the announcement that Gabriel gave to Mary that the kingdom would be given to him. And how and why was it given to him? Look at verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So there is a connection between why the kingdom was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in that phrase... 
thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. You see, this refers again to the character of Jesus while he was in this world. Some people have supposed, I think in error, that this is only at the time when his government is over. But it's the perfection of Jesus Christ in his earthly character that he loved righteousness. He not only loved righteousness, but he hated iniquity. In the days of his flesh, Jesus Christ walked as a man in his humanity. He was tempted as we are in all points, yet without sin. Yet there was never a moment, never a time, when he did or desired to do anything that displeased the Father. He walked in perfect obedience. Oftentimes we fast forward to the cross and we say, the cross accomplished it all. But do you realize the cross would not have accomplished what it accomplished had he not walked in perfect obedience in his humanity? We forget about the reality that he had to keep the law perfectly. He had to keep the law of God. And by keeping the law of God, he magnifies his righteousness. He always did the things which pleased his father. The law was, of course, within his heart. As the Psalms teach us, our Lord's language was much like David's. Oh, how, how I love thy law. It is thy meditation all the day. Can you imagine hating God's law? You realize today that apart from Christ, we would hate the law of God. We hate the law of God because as Paul taught us, it, was, it is a revealer. It's a schoolmaster. And it points to things we don't want to see. It reminds us of just how short we come. Yet you realize that when we meditate on the law of God and we meditate on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his perfection of keeping the law perfectly and hating iniquity, it makes us delight in the law of God because he kept it perfectly for us. Oh, how I love thy law. Indeed, it's what challenges his enemies. The Lord was constantly bombarded with the pharisaical idea that Jesus was somehow sinning. You realize that when they accused him of being a Sabbath breaker, they were trying to accuse him of sin. They were doing all they could to find some sin in this man. And yet, here's the reality. If they could have found one flaw in the righteous character of Christ, the gospel would have to be declared a myth and a fairy tale. Do you realize if there's a single ounce of sin in Jesus Christ at all, the gospel is a fairy tale. I have staked, not by my own choice, but I have staked my entire eternity on the gospel of Jesus Christ that's based on the flawless, flawless Son of God. I'm not claiming any merits of my own. As that hymn says, my worth is not what I own. My worth is not in what I've done. My worth before God has nothing to do with me. It has to do with him and him alone. I truly do believe that Jesus Christ is the sinless son of God. You could not convince me otherwise, no matter how intellectual you are. I don't care how many PhDs you have. You will never convince me that Jesus Christ ever sinned. 
Because everything that the word has declared, I believe it to be true. I'm not worried a single moment about my eternity. I'm not worried about a moment after I draw my last breath. You don't have to pray for me to get out of anywhere because I will be in the presence of the Lord. Don't try to convince me I'm going to be in a false place called purgatory. I will be with the Lord. And I can promise you, once you get there, you won't want to be here. It is this righteousness that Christ fulfills. It is the gospel that delivers the message of his righteousness. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God manifested in the flesh. In order to be God manifested in the flesh, he had to be absolutely perfect. We haven't even come close to perfection in anything. Certainly not our righteousness. But we're not even perfect in, our, in anything that we do. And yet, Christ came, God manifest in the flesh, absolutely perfect. The Holy Spirit was received in full measure. The character of Jesus is in itself a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. Christ is the gospel. The gospel today is being watered down at alarming rates. The true gospel is not even being recognized anymore. One of the great burdens of my heart has been that is people are not getting the real, true gospel. And that's where I have got to be thankful for the sovereignty of God and salvation because there is so much falsehood running rampant. It's going to take a work of God to save the soul. And who gets all the glory for the salvation of the soul? Christ must get all the glory for it because man can't boast. Hey, I chose the right way. There's so many things that are fraudulent about the gospels that are being presented today. But there is a statement that is made in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that talks about the natural man. It says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. It is impossible for an unbeliever, apart from the, the converting work of the Spirit, to understand these truths. I cannot mentally ascend to the reality of what his righteousness means or how it's his righteousness is what makes me acceptable before God because they're spiritually discerned from me. But this love that Christ had for righteousness, how much did he love righteousness? He loved his righteousness so much that he gave himself up for his people. To do what? To deliver us from some iniquity, from some sin, or from all sin and from all iniquity. It's the latter, all sin, all iniquity. He delivered us from that in order that He might present us a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Scripturally, Christ walked in the perfect Law of liberty. But the Lord knew He came to do the will of the Father. Imagine all the things that Christ 
met with in his earthly life. Imagine all the things that he came in contact with, the shame and the reproach, and yet not one time did he ever consider turning away from the Father's will. By way of application, how often are we walking in the right way and something comes into our life, some discouragement, some trial, some difficulty, and just for a brief moment, our mind says, I don't think I can walk in this way anymore. If that's never happened to you, praise God, because it happens to me a lot. To where just for a split moment, I think, is this journey for Christ worth it? Folks, let me be very open and transparent with you. Life is really, really difficult. Anybody that told you as a child that wait till you get to be an adult, it's going to be so much better. And every child that's believing that truth right now, let me just speak to you, it's not easy. But there is a God in heaven who has provided a Christ who if you will look to Him and you will look to His righteousness and know that my life is not an accident, my life is not a chance, that I am under the sovereign protection of God and that whatever happens to me did not happen against the will of God. That's why we pray diligently that our children or our grandchildren, the most important thing we pray for them is that they might know Christ. Not that they become a successful person in life, but that they will come to the saving knowledge of Christ and have an understanding, even at a young age, of what His righteousness really means. And yet, Christ never once turned away from the will. He had only the will to do that which the Father gave to him. How many times could Christ have vindicated himself? How many times could he have said, you know, what you're saying about me, it's not true. But when they asked him who he was, he couldn't deny himself. He proclaimed himself to be God. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and became our sacrifice. His throne is established in righteousness. The Bible tells us also that all that are His are going to be presented before the Father without spot and without blemish. And I'm like, how can that be? I'm full of spots. I'm full of blemishes. Matter of fact, year after year, I noticed more spots and blemishes than I realized I had. And I'm not just talking outwardly. I'm talking about how, I'm talking about how blemished I am by my own sin and how spotted and stained I am with the wickedness and the filthiness of myself who, who still does things that leads me to say, I hate myself for doing that. Why, why, why would I sin against the light of Jesus Christ? And then I get promises like this that somehow in spite of all of my sin, because I belong to Him and because I'm established in His righteousness, I'm going to be presented to the Father without spot and without blemish. The human mind alone cannot comprehend that because the human mind wants to find there's got to be a reason that you did to get accepted there. I'm only there because Christ is my righteousness. And then the writer in Hebrews uses the word, therefore, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, 
has done what? Hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This anointing that's being spoken of here was the reward of Christ's love of righteousness and this hatred of iniquity while on this earth. This eighth verse speaks of Christ as the king and the ninth verse shows why the kingdom was given to him. Now, understand it was not just a simple reward of the administration of this kingdom, but this was what was given to him as the son when God the Father declared him to be the son. I love this phrase, God, even thy God hath anointed thee. What is this anointing? What does it mean? Is it that he was consecrated to this kingly office? Is it something something hidden that we don't see? Does it have a reference to the anointing that took place at different feasts and festivals in the Bible times? It goes all the way back to when Christ was anointed to all these offices. We go back to the picture of when Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist and we're told that he received the Holy Ghost. It came down like a dove. And as the Spirit came upon him, we began to see the manifestation of his love of righteousness and the hatred of iniquity. God the Father said to the world, this is my Son. Hear him in whom I am well pleased. But then notice it says, above thy fellows. Who are these fellows? Are they the angels or something else? The context has been, has been a comparison between angels and mankind. But here, these fellows can't be the angels because never did God speak to the angels these things, but he spoke to mankind. The citizens of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is proving that Christ is superior to the angels, but Christ never assumed the nature of angels. He assumed the nature of sinful man. He never had a true fellowship with the angels like he has with his people. Remember we talked last week or maybe the week before about how the misunderstanding of angels has really begun to take over in, in religious circles. Man has started to worship angels as if they're on an equal footing or equal level with Christ. And yet, Jesus Christ has fellowship with his people. A very real unity that's not described of having with the angels. Some have suggested that the fellows here are not the people of God, but they're the prophets and the priests and the kings who were anointed with oil for their respective offices. But I think if you're honest with the text and with the Scripture, you're going to see that what's meant here is His people. Now think back to who we really are. We're spotted. We're full of blemishes. We fall short of the glory of God. This Christ in His perfect righteousness is not ashamed to call us His brethren. Have you ever had moments in your life when you've been ashamed to be associated with someone or something? I have. Times when I have distanced myself and said I want nothing to do. I'm, I'm ashamed by their action. I'm ashamed of what they've done. This is very personal for me. It's happened with people that were very, very dear, very dear to me that now I don't even know how to talk to them. I don't know how to approach them because they did something that seemingly was so vile and so awful that there's this awkward, I don't know what to do with you. 
If I talk to you, I, I, I may be giving the wrong impression that I, I approve. And, or you, you understand what I'm saying? This, this, it's, this, it's this idea that they've done something so horrible that I'm ashamed to have my name connected with them. Yet do you realize what Jesus Christ has done by identifying himself with you? Do you realize what Jesus Christ was doing when he was sitting with the sinners? And the Pharisees were saying, what kind of a person eats with the sinners? If you were truly God, you'd have nothing to do with them. The Pharisees thought they were the standard of righteousness. Aren't you glad the Pharisees are not the one judging whether you'll enter into the kingdom of God or not? Although there are people today who are basing their entire eternity on what the Pharisee says. You aren't this, you aren't that. You're failing here, you're falling short. My only response can be, you're absolutely right. I'm falling short of the glory of God every moment that I live. And how do you think you're going to go to heaven and be with Christ? Because I'm not counting on how I stand or how I fall. I'm counting on the righteousness of Christ because that's my only acceptable way to heaven. I have no other way. I have no plan B. I have no other way. And yet Jesus Christ identifies with the lowest of the low. And he says, these are mine. Go back to that picture when the son presents his bride to the father. Do you realize the only thing the father is going to see is his son's righteousness? (laughs) Wow. It's mind blowing to me. I see my own wickedness and I don't even see it to the depth that it really is. Your encouraging word of the day is you're actually worse than you think you are. Can't build a church on that kind of language. Not trying to church build. We're trying to proclaim the glory of God. Right? We are worse than we think. And the more... More and more we grow and, we come and we're sanctified, we begin to see more and more just how short we are the glory of God and how much more precious His righteousness becomes. He's the one that's holding the scepter. He took part, Jesus took part with them in the flesh and in the blood. He is the very link in which the whole family of heaven and earth is united to God. This closeness of this union is exhibited in Christ's person as the God-man. We are His fellows. We are those who are close in fellowship. He has fellowship with those that belong to Him. But in all things, Christ has the preeminence. We are in Him, and Christ is in us. I don't know exactly the day or the hour, as I mentioned to you, when all this is going to come to pass. I don't know what we'll remember about this. I don't know what we'll remember about this life. But I do know this. I know now, right now, we're being confronted with one of the greatest truths we're ever going to know is that there is... Forgiveness found with Jesus Christ. And that no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter how far away you think you are from God, there's a command to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ.
God's sovereignty and salvation does not excuse us from not commanding and declaring the gospel. Man is held responsible to what he or she hears. We're responsible to respond. And if Christ is your all in all, run to him. He will not cast any who come unto him. Don't believe the lie that says Christ turns away any. He has never turned away any that have come unto him. I've been rejected many, many times in my life at various levels and stages of life. But Jesus Christ has never rejected me a single time. And every time I have repented of my sin, he's still been there. Every time I've gone my own way, he's still been there. Every time I failed as in every avenue of my life, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, Christ has always been there. When nobody, when nobody could heal my hurts, you hear what I'm saying? Nobody could heal my hurts but Christ. And there are people in my life that are so dear and they could not do what Christ has done for me. And he's done it without any reason in me so that I and stand in awe of his glory, of his majesty, and I say, your righteousness, O Lord. I pray, Lord, that I would delight in your law, to delight to do your will for every area of my life. Folks, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how an unbeliever lives in this world without any hope. And may it be the call of our life to point people to Christ. You can't drag them kicking and screaming, either does God. But he certainly will make them willing in his day. And I have hope in knowing that not a single one will he leave behind. And he won't lose a single one. That's my hope. And it's all because of his righteousness. Run quickly to Christ. Don't look back, run quickly to him. Let's finish our time together this morning singing a hymn that always reminds us of what's coming. We'll sing this hymn and then we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. It's on page number 119. There is a higher throne. Every time we've come to this hymn, it reminds me not of what is coming, but what already is. Let's stand as we sing hymn number 119.